to take for granted many things that would be easy to take for granted because I've been preaching through Hebrews for now about a year in my own church so I can say certain things to the congregation and they know it because they've been hearing it for the last year or so. And so just bear with me as I give us an overall view of the book of Hebrews um, before we get into the text itself in chapter 7. Uh, the book of Hebrews was a, likely written by Paul to a group of Hebrew Christians that were struggling. They were struggling because they had faced persecution. Uh, they were facing suffering. And so many of them were looking at going back to the old covenant of worship. They were looking at going back to the old sacrificial system. It's likely that the temple had not yet been destroyed, so this was written probably before 70 A.D., because you see the active use of giving, giving offerings throughout the book. And so if you could think of it this way, this book is written to a group of people that are standing in the shadow of the temple looking at that temple as if it still had something to offer them in terms of their redemption. And that was their struggle. That as they faced the tough trials and sufferings of life, they were beginning to question, is Christ truly sufficient? And so over and over again throughout the book, what we see is the author is making a case that Christ is superior to all things. Christ is preeminent all things. And he begins in the first couple chapters that Christ is superior to angels. He moves then to an argument that Christ is superior to Moses. And then Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And in chapter 4, the theme of Christ's priesthood, at the end of chapter 4, the theme of Christ's priesthood begins to, to manifest itself. And we see that as you go through from chapter 4 into chapter 5 and 6, Christ is declared to be superior to the old priesthood because Christ does not come by law, but comes from the manner or the order of this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. And that's where we find ourselves here, is in verses 26 and 28, it becomes a summary of all that has been stated in chapter 7, and really, as we will see, it's a summary of all that's been stated in the book of Hebrews. So let us hear the Word of God in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like these, those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." And this is God's Word, and may He bless the reading of it. We see four things in this text. We see, first, that Christ is a sufficient high priest. We see that Christ is a separated high priest. We see that Christ is a sacrificial high priest. And we see that Christ is a superior high priest. And the argument has been is that Christ is of a different order than the Levitical priesthood. And that He's of the order of Melchizedek. And so while this argument has been contrasting Christ to the old order, we actually see that the old order forms to inform, inform us 
in how we should view Christ now in the heavens on behalf of His people. So I want you to notice that He's a sufficient high priest in verse 26. It says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And that word fitting means that it's proper. It's what's right. The old priesthood was not fitting to accomplish what it was intended to accomplish, which was the presence of God, to offer atonement for sins. But we have a fitting high priest, that meaning that Christ is appropriate to complete the work, to complete the job that He has been given. Christ is appropriate and fitting for what is needed to accomplish the work. It's speaking of the rightness of Christ. God had made a way by His law to have access to Him. You follow certain steps in the Old Testament, and on the Day of Atonement, you would be able to experience the presence of God. But the fact that He provides a way later that's different than the previous way tells us that the previous way that God interacted with His people was not sufficient. It was incomplete. It awaited a fullness. It was but a shadow. It was just a type. It was something pointing to something that was later to come that would be greater, meaning it was not fitting. And that's the whole point, is that what was before was not fitting, but what we have now is fitting. Meaning this is beginning to see this emerge that Christ and Christ alone is our means of salvation. He is alone our means for fellowship with God. And I want you to notice something, what it says in the text. It says we have this. For it was fitting that we should have. That's an amazing statement because this book of Hebrews deals with some of the most complex arguments in all of Scripture and what's called the warning passages. And in those warning passages, if you read them incorrectly or through a wrong theological lens, you could maybe think that you could lose your salvation. That's not what they're saying. They're true warning passages, warning and a means to keep the Christian faithful. But you could be discouraged in those warning passages. You could be discouraged by something. You could be discouraged at the things in life. But what we say, what we see here is that this is actually written to a group of Christians that have Christ as their priest right now. All that has been said of the superior superiority of Christ is available to us right now. I want you to notice those words. We have such a high priest. This is something that is a reality for the Christian. Well, what is that reality? If you go back to verse 11 of chapter 7 through verses 14, we see these words. Now, if beginning a conditional sentence, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? This statement is saying that the former way we were not able to reach perfection by the law. 
And so those that were tempted to look back at the law as a means of salvation or as a means of getting them through their difficult times of persecution, what we realize in the text of Scripture clearly says is that you could not get perfection by the law. And if you could not get perfection by the law and God brings His Son, what is the implication? Through Christ we can receive perfection. And so what we have as our high priest is the perfection of Christ given to us. Verses 15 through 17, we read, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Just hang on that for a second here. Whereas the former priest would come, be born, live, and die. They continually died. But what do we see of our high priest? He has an indestructible life. And that is something we have in our high priest. That is a current reality that we have is a high priest that is indestructible. And he offers that indestructible life to us. But that's not all that we have in this high priest. Again, we're looking at that phrase in verse 26 of we have a high priest. What does it mean to say we have this high priest? Not only does it mean we have perfection in Christ, that we have eternal life, but verses 18 through 19 say this, is that we can draw near to God. It says, for on the other hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It's amazing that the text even says that the law was useless. But what this does say is that we may draw near to God. We have access to God through our high priest that is eternal, that gives eternal life, and is perfected. Not only do we, are we able to draw near to God, and the amazing thing of this is simple fact. If this is something we have, it means it's a current reality for your life. And so friends, let me just tell you that whatever we face in life, whether we face suffering, whether we face sickness, we face disease, whether our economy collapses, whether we face some sort of national tragedy or we face personal tragedy, you may draw near to God because we have a high priest. The text is telling us this is what we have. You have it right now. You may draw near to God at any moment of your life. There's never a time where you can't draw near to God. The Levitical priesthood would draw near to God once a year at the Day of Atonement when the priest would go into the inner sanctuary, into the Holy of Holies, offering sins for himself, and then on behalf of the people. And only the high priest could go in there. What we have is a great high priest in heaven right now interceding on our behalf through whom we may draw near to God at any time. Thus the text tells us this, we have a better hope. Not only that, but we see that what we have in our high priest is that it is immutable. It is immutable. Whereas the former was insufficient, in Christ it is sufficient. We read this is that quoting in Hebrews, it's constantly quoting Old Testament. We see a quotation 
from Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Meaning this, these realities that we have in Christ are immutable. That means that they will not change, but they are forever established in Christ. All of the promises in Christ are immutable. Christ will never change. We see that this is for fitting. We should have this. This is what we have. This speaks of Christ as alone as our sufficient intercessor. We do not need to look to anyone else. We do not need to look to other means. And so friends, if you know Christ, He has accomplished the work of atonement. He continues His work of intercession. And the Hebrews that were looking back to a, a faulty system of law, looking back to the temple, looking back to the sacrifices, looking back to that law, and, and being tempted to go and return back to that, you might think, well, that's not us. That's, that's describing the Hebrews. I, I, I have no interest in that. But they're really not so far off from us, are they? Because so often we try to, as Christians, find comfort, find peace in how well our Christian performance is. Did I perform well enough today as a Christian to have comfort and assurance of faith? And we rest our assurance so often on how good we did rather than on how good and perfect Christ is. So we may not be tempted to look at the temple and look at an Old Testament sacrificial system, but we are tempted to look back upon our works as a means of comfort, as a means of encouragement, And friends, you won't find it there. In fact, what you will find is discouragement. What you will find is desperation. If we are constantly looking for our assurance of faith on our works, we will only be left flat on the ground realizing we are helpless. So we don't look on works. We look upon Christ and His completed work that He has given us. Just remember this, our salvation is not by law, nor is our assurance, nor is our sanctification. It is by Christ working in us, His righteousness in us. He is a sufficient high priest because He's a fitting high priest. But not only that, we see He's a separated high priest. A list of attributes are given that actually are reminiscent of what we should think of with the actual priesthood of the Aaronic priesthood. And that that is that they were to be separated. They were to be different. Uh, They were to stand apart from others. First, the idea of being a high priest meant that you were chosen. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So a high priest in the Old Testament did not just get to declare himself a high priest. He was appointed such. And specifically... The Levitical priesthood meant you were born into it. And to be of the high priestly family, that means you were related to Aaron and of the children of Aaron. There was no high priest that was self-appointed. And so that idea of distinctness of the priesthood is already brought out in the fact that Christ is called a high priest. Any high priest is distinct. Any high priest is different than everyone else. You see of how Christ was chosen in verses 8 of Uh, chapter 5 through 10, although he was a son, 
He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated, notice that language, Christ was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Christ himself was set aside as high priest. Just the nature of the office means that he is set apart. So we see that right off the top, Christ is separated, but how is he separated? Well, we begin to see these list of attributes that are stated here. Is The first one is that he is holy. You know, think about the, the priesthood for a second and how different they were. You see in Leviticus, in chapter 21, a glimpse of this on how they had to be so different. In 21, verse 18, it says, For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has mutilated face, or a limb too long. So if my limb was too long or longer than the other, I'm disqualified from the priesthood. And we could go on and look at the qualifications for the priesthood. There were certain things that they had to fulfill, and if they did not fulfill those things, they could not be priests. They were to be separate. They were to be different. They were to be actually sanctified, which means that they are removed from normal use and to a special use. And specifically, they were to be holy. They were to be dedicated. They were to be set apart. In fact, we even read that their clothing was to be holy. In Exodus, in chapter 29, we read of the holiness of their garments. Where it says this, Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and on the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You think about that for a second. Is not only was the priest himself to be holy, but his ver- the very clothing he wore was to be set apart, was to be sanctified, was to be distinct from common use, and his clothing was to be called holy. What made the clothing holy? What made the, whole, the, 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 the garments to be sanctified? Because what we have to see here about this is this, is the garments then and of them, in and of themselves were not holy. They're just threads that were sewn together by sinful men, worn by sinful men. It was obedience to God's positive law through a process that made the garments holy. Why do I mention that? Because the garments were not holy, and if the garments could not be holy and be holy within themselves, neither could the high priest be truly holy. But what do we see of Christ? Christ is called the Holy One in Acts chapter 2, verse 27, in quoting Psalm 16. You shall not let your Holy One be corrupted in Sheol. That's a prophecy of Christ. That's a prophecy of the Messiah saying that He is holy. The idea of holiness, it means set apart. And Christ, as we've seen, was appointed. But I want us to see the idea that he was set apart by God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Christ was set apart by God. Christ was elected of God. 
in eternity. You see that in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, that He was appointed to this task. Or you look at our confession in chapter 8, Christ the Mediator, it simply says this, it pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus. He was set apart. He was made holy. He was holy though. We have to see this in His nature. Christ in His nature was holy, whereas the priest was not holy in His nature, whereas even the garments of the priest were not holy in their nature, but they had to go through things to make them holy. They were in and of themselves not holy. Christ in His nature is holy. Hebrews tells us this, He is the radiance and glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Christ was holy in His very nature. You think of what we see in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah is brought to the throne room of God and he sees the seraphim surrounding the throne day and night singing, holy, holy, holy. What does John tell us about Isaiah's vision? John tells us that when Isaiah saw the throne of Yahweh, he beheld Jesus. All of eternity, Jesus is holy in His nature, and for all of eternity we will worship Him for His holiness. We also see that in His humanity, as the God-man, His person, He was holy. What do we see at the transfiguration? The Father looks upon the Son and says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father was pleased with the Son because He was perfectly holy. He was perfectly obedient. He was perfectly pure. As John Owen says of this passage, His nature was pure and holy, absolutely free from any spot or taint of our original defilement. If you wonder, how could it be said of me that I am perfected in Christ, though yet I'm still a sinner? Because of Christ in us who is perfect and holy. It's not our holiness, it's His. It's His righteousness. Not only is He holy, the text says He was innocent. This is really speaking of His life towards His neighbors and His life towards God. You think of Christ's obedience to the first and second table of the law. And so this is when it says that he was innocent, it's speaking of his life that he lived. Whereas holy refers to a positive statement of his holiness, that he is holy, this is who he is. Innocent refers to the fact that there is never any unholiness in him, nor was there ever any unholiness in him. And to think of it this way, you may think of it in his, again, through the lens of the two tables of the law that he perfectly loved God, and he perfectly loved his neighbor. And that's what we should see in his innocence, is that he perfectly loved God, perfectly loved neighbor. You see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit in his mouth. He never lied to his neighbor. He never had any thought towards his neighbor other than promoting their well-being. 
Jesus was completely and wholly innocent. Which makes passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. It makes that passage so incomprehensible for our finite minds that he who was perfectly innocent became sin who knew no sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, we fell. I fell in loving my neighbor. I fell in loving God. You fell in loving your neighbor. You fell in loving God, your God. We fell in all of these areas. We do not love God as we should. We do not love our neighbor as we should. But what do we see here? It is indeed fitting that we have this high priest who was innocent, that loved his neighbor, loved his God perfectly, and we have him as our high priest. So whereas we may fail, our high priest never once failed, but perfectly fulfilled the the law of God on behalf of his church. Isn't that encouraging for us this afternoon? It says that he was unstained. This is his next attribute. He's holy, he's innocent, but he's also unstained. And what that means is he does not contract the stains from others. You might consider to to understand how this means, how James uses this in James chapter 1, verse 27. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled. So you see this idea that something's pure, it's undefiled before before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, that the environment stains us. You might think of a garment that is clean and pure, but then it gets something on it that stains it from outside. Christ was unstained. You know, just by way of contrast, you might think of how the tabernacle itself was to be sanctified and set apart. And the reason why Leviticus chapter 16 is the Day of Atonement. And we read this on that Day of Atonement, that one time a year where the Day of Atonement would take place in the old sacrificial system. In verse 15 it says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is, for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Because the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And, and listen to this. This is what I want to get at about this idea of Christ being unstained. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. In other words, this inanimate object, the tabernacle, is said to have been defiled by being surrounded by sin. Christ himself was our high priest, a lamb without a spot. You see, the high priesthood and the whole argument is why would you look to the priesthood when you can look to Christ? If you were a Levitical priest, if you were a son of Aaron, you could be relieved of your duties because you got leprosy. 
because you were unclean, because you touched a dead body. You could be stained by the world. But what do we see of our high priest? Not stained by the world. He's unstained. Then you see this next attribute that he's separated from sinners. means he was isolated. Which is perplexing because Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. And last night as we were doing our family worship, my youngest daughter just asked me, hold on dad, if Jesus was separated from sinners, but he was with people that were sinful, how could the scripture say that he was separated from sinners? What does that mean? Well, we see that Jesus was in communion and fellowship with sinful people, right? You think of him being near sinful people. Matthew chapter 9 Verse 11, at the accusation of the Pharisees, we read this, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciple, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But we read in Hebrews that he separated from sinners, but when we read in the gospel accounts, what do we see? Jesus ate with sinners. He was around sinners. He was was with them. What does it mean then he was separated from sinners? When John Owen says it's sin in its nature, it's causes and effects. So to say that he was separated from sinners means he was distinguished. He wasn't influenced by them. In part, that's why people hated him, right? His light exposed their darkness. I appreciate that you read Psalm 1. Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1. Jesus never walked in the way of sinners. Jesus never sat in the seat of mockers. But his delight was upon the law of the Lord, day in and day and night. So while Jesus was in this world and he was surrounded by sinners, he was never stained by them. He was separated from them. You think about Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where he describes Christian and faithful coming into Vanity Fair. And he just takes a quick aside in Pilgrim's Progress where Bunyan begins to describe how the prince of princes, the Lord Jesus, came to Vanity Fair and he was invited there by the prince of Vanity Fair, Beelzebub. But how our prince never once bought of the things of the stores at Vanity Fair. So whereas Jesus walked through Vanity Fair, he never once partook in the goods of Vanity Fair. He was separated from sinners. How different Christ is from us, huh? How vastly different Christ is from us. You think of Peter with the Judaizers when Paul had to confront him. Where Peter almost threw out the gospel as he was influenced by the pressure of sinful people around him, he would almost forget the gospel. And if that's Peter, think of ourselves. How too often it is that we we seem like the world at times, don't we? Or when we're around sinners and amongst sinners and we're out in the world, in the workplace, or wherever we may be, And we're around sinners and we begin to start to look like them as well. 
Christ was separated from sinners. And he was separated from sinners on our behalf. If you ever get discouraged by your walk, find encouragement in looking at the one that was separated from sinners. And there's an amazing thing about this is that Christ ate with the tax collectors and the sinners, yet separated from sinners. Jesus never said, away from me, I am too holy for you. But rather he said, come unto me to them. If Christ would be amongst Judas and Pharisees and the crowds that wanted to hang him upon the cross and those ignorant people that just only wanted another meal from him rather than to feast on his flesh and to drink of his blood and receive eternal life, what would keep us from coming to Christ? What would keep us from coming to Christ for encouragement? What would keep us from coming to Christ for comfort? What would keep us from coming to Christ for our salvation? He was separated from sinners, but yet he was among them. Let me ask you this in thinking about this, that he was separated from sinners, that he was holy, that he was unstained. How many of you have access to high and powerful people. And I mean really powerful people. How many of you could text message the King of England right now and get his advice on something? Or maybe perhaps call the President of the United States. How many of you could call Elon Musk and ask him to help you with your Twitter account? What about asking Bill Gates how to reprogram your computer? The point is none of us would have access to any of those people. But what do we see here in the text? We have such a high priest. That was separated from sinners, that was holy, that was unstained. He calls us to come to him, not just for salvation, but for all time. Final attribute that we see here in the text, not only that he was he was holy, that he was set apart, separated from sinners, unstained. But we see also that he's exalted above the heavens. This really encapsulates the otherness of Christ. That he's a high priest states that he's, there's otherness about him. That he's holy communicates the otherness, the unstained, the separated from sinners. These are that he was innocent. All of these things speak of the otherness of Christ. But then when you get to this little phrase, that he is exalted above the heavens, we get into the mysterious nature of Christ. Acts chapter 3 and verse 21 tells us that heaven itself would receive Christ. It says, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. And so when we see this idea that he is exalted above the heavens, this is speaking of his ascension. When he sat down of the majesty on high, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 1. Or in Hebrews chapter 4, we see this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. So he is exalted above the heavens, and we might think, yes, I get that. 
Christ is in heaven. But for a second, meditate upon the glorious mystery of it. Christ is truly God. And what does Solomon say at the dedication of the temple? You, O God, not even the heavens can contain. But Christ is in heaven. Christ is in heaven exalted. And what does this communicate? But his sovereignty, his power, his omniscience, his his omnipotence. It communicates his sovereign rule as our king. I like what Ephesians says on this, on the ascension in Ephesians 1, in verse 20. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The amazing statement is that Christ is sovereign as king, ruling as sovereign God over all things right now. There's no power outside of his jurisdiction. His dominion encompasses and is encompassing of all things. He is almighty God. And the truth of it is this, is we are told we have him as our high priest. The sovereign God that is exalted above the heavens, we have as our high priest. And you know, you think about the Old Testament priesthood how the priest would wear these special garments and the high priest would wear a row or a a vest and on that vest would be 12 stones, the 12 stones of Israel. And you can picture that priest going into the Holy of Holies thinking about the 12 tribes representing those 12 tribes before God. You know, that very image is what we're supposed to see of Christ but exalted high above the heavens on our behalf, representing us as he wears us on his vest, on his chest. We're always near to the heart of Christ, who is exalted above all the heavens. Let me just tell you that this should drive us to awe, to to worship, to um, amazement, to wonderment. Why? Why? Why would I ever look to what I could accomplish for my salvation? Why would I ever rest in works? Why would I, you know, if you think of Roman Catholicism, why would I ever look to a human priest to do something for me that Christ has already done? It's complete in Christ. He's a sufficient high priest. But we see in verse 27, he's also a sacrificial high priest. And this begins to show us the results of his his attributes and that he is a sacrificial high priest on our behalf. It says he has no need like those high priests, those high priests of the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up to God. Jesus does not need personal atonement, but 
the priests did, and you see this over and over again, just as a real quick statement in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3, it says, if it is the anointed priest who sins, pause. Why is this provision put in the law? If a priest sins, it means there was a capability and a possibility and a likelihood and a reality that the priest would in fact do what? Sin. So if any, if any sins unintentionally, this is unintentional sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. That's the, that's the point in the declaration of Christ's holiness is that he did not commit sin. But the high priest, it says in Hebrews, daily. And most commentators are, are debate about what that, that means, that idea of, of daily sins. And rather than debate about that, what we, we do see is there was a continual offering for sins. In Exodus chapter 29 and verse 38, we read this. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One in the morning, one in the evening. They continually sinned. When you think about this for a second, priests were set apart. They had holy garments. So they, they would wear things on their head. They would wear things on their garments. Their daily duties of worship constantly kept them in God's word, constantly reminded them of who God was and the special relationship that they had with God. But what do we see of those that were continually inundated with the presence of God and the word of God is that they still sinned? If they would sin, what hope do we have? Do we spend as much time in the Word and as much time in the things of God? Do we wear on our head and do we wear on our garments the things that remind us of God continually? But yet they, with those things, they still sin. So they, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could ever offer a sacrifice for the people. They would go into the Holy of Holies, but before they could go into the Holy of Holies, they would have to offer a sacrifice for themselves. But what do we see of Christ? He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Meaning Christ offered one definite sacrifice. The high priest, what would they offer? Grain offering, an animal of some sort. They would offer incense. And the whole point of that is this, is the priest didn't have actually anything of their own to offer God. What do we see of our high priest? He offered himself. He is not only the priest, but he himself is the sacrifice. He is the sacrificial lamb. And the language here is so interesting because it says, since he did this once for all when he 
offered up himself. And that idea of offer is to be placed on the altar. Christ placed himself on the altar, not by human means, but by the God-man. And he did this once for all. They did it daily. It was a one-time event. You know, I think that this verse really teaches us the difference between us and Rome. The Mass is a daily sacrifice of Christ, or a weekly sacrifice of Christ. Anytime there's a funeral Mass, anytime there is a Sunday Mass, it is a representation of the sacrifice of Christ according to their own language. Do you know that when you think about that and you calculate those numbers, Rome has sacrificed Christ more so than any Old Testament priest could have sacrificed any animal. This is why we're not together with Rome. And Rome's our mission field, amen? Christ did this once and for all. He was a sacrificial high priest, and finally he was the superior high priest. We see in verse 28 the the weakness of the old covenant. It says, For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The law law appoints fallen sinful men, and those sinful men are characterized by weakness, characterized by sin. But in the new covenant, it appoints a perfect son. Now, what does it mean that he has been made perfect? Because we understand in a correct Christology, there was never a point where Christ wasn't perfect. He was perfect from all of eternity because he is holy God. So what does it mean that he was made perfect? Well, Hebrews in chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. It's speaking of his life lived, the sacrifice on the cross was this means of perfection. And what do we see here in the text is nothing but contrast of Christ to the old covenant. It says that God in the old covenant appointed men that were weak. But in the new covenant, it says that he appoints his son. You know, sometimes we we get into friendly debates with our Presbyterian brothers about the nature of the old covenant and the new covenant and the continuity, discontinuity between the two. It would serve us well to know Hebrews for those debates. Because we see a distinct difference in here the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You see that the Old Covenant was instituted by law, but the New Covenant is instituted by the word of oath. You see that the Old Covenant was weak versus the new one that is perfected forever. So what was really needed for atonement is found only in Christ, who was our fitting high priest. And I just want to draw our attention back to this point. Christ indeed was fitting. Which means he has fulfilled a need and a common need for all of humanity. If he's the fitting one, if he is the right one, 
It means that there was a need, and that need is accomplished by Christ and only by Christ. Our greatest need that we have as long as we have breath is Christ, and that's been fulfilled by Christ. Let me ask you, friends, have you recognized your need for Christ? And if you have recognized your need for Christ, praise Him. We have a marvelous, glorious Savior that is a merciful high priest. And it says that we have Him as our high priest. And if you have called upon Him, you have Him, He has you, He will not let you go. He is sovereign Lord interceding on your behalf right now. And so friends, if that is true of you, then this is the word of God to you, is cast your anxieties on Him, for He cares for you. Cast your worries upon Him. He loves you. He has you. He gave His life for you. He didn't begin to love you because He never started to love you. It's an eternal love that our high priest has for us. If this is true of you, that you recognized your need for Christ and you have Christ. The beauty is this, is that you may draw near to Him at any time. You don't need a high priest for it. You may draw near to Him any time, night or day, regardless of whatever is going on in your life. We are told we have an, a high priest that ever lives to intercede on our behalf. He loves to intercede on your behalf. So draw near to Him. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy in our time of trouble and our time of need. That's the great high priest we have in Christ. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You for the Lord Jesus Christ and His work of intercession on our behalf. Indeed, this is a great mystery to us, but we know that Your Word teaches this as an infallible truth and a point of assurance for us. So we praise You and thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation and the joy of salvation that we may have in Him. We are thankful that we may be content whether we are brought low or brought high because of Christ. We are thankful that we may cast our cares to You because of Christ, that we may draw near to You, that we have this great hope because of Christ, that we have an eternal salvation is according to an immutable plan from all of eternity. Father, we pray that by your grace we would reflect upon the truths of Christ's priesthood and that they would be a means of encouragement to us. We pray that they would be a means of our desires for your word and our desires to live after the likeness of Christ. Father, we pray that these truths will not depart from our hearts but give us rest and assurance continually. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.